The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Good morning. We're going to get started here. we got a lot to cover. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, Father, we thank you that you have revealed your truth to us both in your word and in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to live and walk out the truth, to walk in your spirit of truth, and to walk out the lifestyle that is in line with your, your truth. pray that you, would, that you would speak through your word this morning to us, make it, make it have deep effect in our lives. Help us to be convicted, but also to be encouraged. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, open up your Bible to 1 John. We're going to tackle 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude today. That's wrong. <laughs> so, I'm going to do a jet tour of 1 John, and then open it up for questions. So if you have questions in the middle, please write them down. I want you to ask questions. <laughs> and then 2 John through Jude, we're going to read those books together, and then we'll discuss them together. It'll be a little bit more conversational than typical. Hmm. All right. The background of 1 John. It was written by the Apostle John. According to strong church tradition, there's not really any question if you believe the early church. Um, and the occasion was, this is the early church. It was probably roughly around 90 to 95 AD. And it was, John was the only surviving apostle. So he is, in one of his books, he calls himself the elder. He's the old, he's the old guy who's there and the whole church looks up to him greatly. What he says has a lot of weight. But he's taken up residence in Ephesus, kind of set up camp there, and he has an evangelistic kind of uh, crusade, if you will. That's probably not the right term. But an evangelistic effort. He's encouraging the church, and he's writing, writing, and writing. <laughs> so we have five books from him, the, the gospel, the three epistles, and... Revelation, and they were probably all written here in Ephesus. So, why is he writing First John, though? Well, the situation isn't really clear. Um, he doesn't say what the opposition is that he's trying to address, but he does make positive statements, and kind of doing some reverse engineering, we can figure out that there was Gnosticism going on. Gnosticism was a very early heresy that came into the church. And it was trying to say, well, all that is physical, your body, is evil, and all that is spiritual, your spirit, is good. And thus, Jesus wasn't actually physical. He didn't have a physical body. He was just a spirit, and he looked human. That's wrong. And we can't believe that, because if Jesus is not human, 
then he can't be our perfect substitute. And if he's not divine, then he doesn't have an infinite payment for our sin. So we need to hold both in tension, but together. And so these people, not only did the Gnostics say, well, your body is all evil, they also, on the one hand, some of them said, your, your body is evil, so you need to treat it really harshly. You need to, like, be kind of ascetic or self-flagellate, kind of, kind of whip it into shape, and they were legalistic. On the other side of the spectrum, which I believe is more of the camp that John was addressing, was, well, your body is wicked and it doesn't affect your spirit at all. So whatever you do in your body doesn't matter. You do whatever. You, you sin away and it's not going to have any effect on you because your real person, you, you, what matters is your spirit. That is obviously wrong. And John addresses that very, very strongly in this book. Uh, a note on his writing style, he works in absolutes rather than providing caveats. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the book of 1 John, and it can be a little bit confusing sometimes. I think that we're going to be clarifying it a little bit for you as we look at the context and also his wording. Um, but it also is just helpful to know. He talks about light and darkness. He doesn't talk about what's in the middle. He talks about truth and lies. He doesn't talk about what's in the middle. He doesn't give all the caveats that Paul does. So that's just a helpful thing for us to note as we go in. And a disclaimer, just personally. Um, this lesson has a lot. This book has a lot. And it's really challenging. And it's not just for you. It's challenging for me too. I am going to preach it boldly, not because I've mastered it, but because this is God's word, and I want to present it as God's word. I am challenged greatly by this book, though, and I hope that it challenges you, too. All right, let's jump in. 1 John, chapter 1. We're not going to read every word, but at the beginning, we're going to read a little bit more than at the end. Um, before we jump in, I just want you to think about this. This is... Let's read this in light of a, a pre-Gnostic, false teachers. They're, they're coming out of the church, and then they're saying, you guys in the church, you're believing it all wrong. We have the true knowledge. We have the higher knowledge, the secret knowledge, and you need to come in with us, or you're not going to have the higher truth. And so they were ostracizing the church and saying that they were the unfaithful ones, that they were the ones who didn't have it right. And they were shaming those who were staying faithful and according living according to the truth that's really important because john is coming in as a pastoral with a pastoral heart and he's saying this is a total falsehood don't worry about that you need to just focus on what is true so with that in mind let's read what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is important because it's physical. He's addressing the Gnostic belief that Jesus didn't actually have a body. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is so encouraging. Can you imagine, as a New Testament believer, you're, you're there in the church, and you're getting told that you're believing it all wrong. You're not in. You're not in with the right crowd. You're believing falsehood, and you're being ostracized. And John is here writing to you saying, look, that's not what matters. Those people are trying to get you to join their group. But what we have is so much better. It's fellowship with God. God himself. How similar is that to us nowadays? We have plenty of people who are trying to get us to believe that there's some other truth. There's some other way. We don't have it right. You guys are too judgmental. You're, you don't have it right. Or you're too loose or something. They're, they're, you have friends or family or you have people in your life or just the culture at large telling you that you're not believing the truth. And in the face of these, this opposition, what do you hold fast to? John tells us, fellowship with God. That's better. That's more worthwhile. Continuing on in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is important. John is addressing, he's not just saying these random ethereal statements. He's addressing a specific situation. With the Gnostics, they were presenting that it didn't, didn't matter if you sin, because it's just your body. And John is saying, no, actually, it does matter. God is holy, and we need to live holy. So let's read it in light of that, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. I'm going to stop there. So does the situation become a little bit clearer to you? Why he's talking about sin? And why he's saying, yeah, we recognize. This is like the one, one section where he gives a caveat. He's like, yeah, we do sin. We need to recognize that it is sin. Call it what it is. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So we repent from that sin and we run to him. We walk in the truth. We walk according to the righteous way. He's delineating between a falsehood and the true way of living. So let's keep going. Um, I've got 
I bolded in your notes just words, uh, licentious, it's a decently large word, it just means license <clears throat> to sin, basically. As if, living as if God's grace means that you don't have to worry about sin, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't really exist, you can just live however you want. These people are propagating a licentious lifestyle. Um, in the second verse of chapter 2, the part that I didn't read, it says, I'll just read the whole verse, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. When I read that, initially I go, wait a second, Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world? What? what? I didn't think that everyone was going to be saved. True. Not everyone is going to be saved. We just heard a very sobering message on that. However, however, Jesus is the only propitiation available to the whole world. And that's what he's getting at here. It's elevating Christ as the only way. It's not saying everybody's going to be saved. It's saying Christ is the only way to be saved. So we continue on. Um... Let's read this next section in light of the carelessness that the Gnostics treated sin with. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. <coughs> Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, John, you lost us. It's a new commandment, or is it an old commandment? What even is the commandment? Where are you going here? He doesn't actually say explicitly right here what this commandment is. It's only one commandment. And he says, it's not a new commandment, it's an old commandment. And it's a new commandment. What in the world? So it's clarified a little bit for us in Second John verses 5 and 6. So I'm going to flip over there. And just read you Second John verses 5 and 6. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So there's the commandment. To love one another. It's basic, it's simple, okay, that's helpful, but what about this new and old thing? Well, it's <coughs> new, not in the sense of something you never had before, but in the sense of fresh. It's freshly presented in Christ. Christ and the Spirit have given us a refreshed vision of what love is like. And so, anew, afresh, we are to walk in this commandment. It's not really new, but it's kind of new, and so it kind of makes sense why he's kind of fumbling over his, like, well, it's old, but it's also new, and it's 
Does it make a little bit more sense now? So let's read it again, and hopefully it'll make a little more sense. I can find it. Uh, verse, starting in verse 6, which clarifies for us that this is pointing back to Christ. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked in love. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's new in that it is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining as God shines forth through you. So it's renewed in you. It's confusing. I'll, I'll just, I'll just grant it. <laughs> but let's keep going. Um, I'm going to jump back to my notes and we're going to go to verses 15 and 17. 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is a challenging passage. This one got me this last week. Can you think of anything in this world that you love? Anything that you desire? Anything that gets in the way of your desire for God and makes you love God less and kind of replaces him in your heart? He's getting you where it counts. <laughs> So, what is that thing? And what are you going to do about it? How can you submit to God? How can you turn that over and say, this is an idol. I need to crush it. I need to throw it away. Or, this is an imbalanced thing in my life. And I need to make sure that this comes under submission to God. Some things that you can idolize are good things. And you should not throw away everything that is an idol. Some things are wrong in your heart, but they're not wrong in reality. So reorient your heart towards that thing. And how can you do that in your life? This isn't a counseling session where we can go through and try to figure out what that looks like in your life, but think about it for yourselves. How can you reorient your heart towards the things that you hold most dear so that God is first? All right. Enough conviction for a few seconds. Let's keep going. <laughs> um, you'll notice in the notes I've, I've inserted MacArthur's outline, and he's got these diff five different sections in the book, and he calls them spirals. Now, you think of different ways that people think. Some people are linear in their thinking. Some people are random in their thinking. That's me. And some people are very circular. They just kind of try to say the same thing in multiple ways, and they're trying to really drive the point home. That's what John is doing in this book. And so 
he's got these spirals where it's just kind of a repetition. And at a certain point, we're actually not going to read a certain passage because he's basically said the same point already, and this is a survey class. But at this point, we're going to keep going. Spiral two. So, antichrists is the term that Paul or that John uses to refer to these false teachers, these Gnostic teachers. And that's important for us to just just know. This isn't him talking about the antichrist, the end times. This is him talking about those who are opposed to Christ, who have denied Christ in his fullness. So in, uh, in the section, I'm in Roman numeral 2A1, Antichrists depart from Christian fellowship. John is encouraging the church that they've been faithful to God, but the false teachers are departing from the church, showing their true nature. People who are saved are generally in the church. Are there exceptions? Yes, I know that there are exceptions. However, we are commanded to not neglect gathering together. And those who forsake the church, we have reason to question. That should raise an eyebrow, a question mark in our mind. Are they part of the church? <clears throat> Antichrists, or false teachers, deny the Christian faith. He refers the churches back to what they heard at the beginning of their faith. They must believe Jesus is the Christ. And... False teachers deceive the Christian faithful. So let's read verses uh, 26 and 27 of chapter 2. 26 and 27, chapter 2. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. That's another part that's hard to understand. <laughs> what is he talking about? What's the anointing? And what, how does it teach us about all things? And we don't have need for teachers. Is he saying that Christian teachers aren't essential? Didn't God give spiritual gifts to people? And didn't the gift of teaching, wasn't that part of it? Yes, that is part of it. He's not saying that... Christian teachers are unimportant, otherwise he would be discrediting himself. What he is saying is you have the Holy Spirit, the anointing, in you. And I don't know about you guys, but when you come across something where, let's just go back to the example of the culture. The culture tells you this is really okay. This sin is okay. When you have the Spirit of God in you, you should be able to recognize, no, that's not okay. You have the Spirit testifying to your heart the truth, and you don't need someone to teach you that it's wrong, because the Spirit is telling you it's wrong. And so in that way, he's confronting them and saying, abide in him. Go with what the Spirit says. You know the truth. The Spirit is testifying to you the truth. Go with what God says. So how do we abide in Him? Well, through reading His Word and understanding the truth, and through being obedient and submissive to what God says. So, 
That's what he's telling these, these New Testament believers. He's saying, go with what the Spirit says, not just what the culture is saying. All right. We're going to jump to verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I think it's just a, a sobering reminder that the judgment day is coming. And we want to live in a way that, walk in a way that is worthy of God and that is in line with the truth. And when we do that, we don't have to fear the end. We don't have to fear a... a... Can you imagine Christ coming in his glory and you going, oh shoot, I really didn't live the way that I wanted to. That's not what we want to do. And so he's encouraging the people to just keep that in mind. Keep it in perspective. Keep the end in mind and live the present in light of eternity. So um, he gives a moral test. A moral test of the false teachers. Um, and he's saying uh, that, uh, number one under B, the purifying hope of the Lord's return, and number two, the Christian's incompatibility with sin. That's where we're going to jump to. So chapter three, starting, starting in verse four. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Now, side note, lawlessness is more serious than just sin. Lawlessness is complete rebellion against God, utter rejection of God. So that's setting the stage here. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. This helps us. It frames it up for us. What is he saying when he talks about sinning in this passage? He's talking about people who are utterly rejecting God, who practices sin. So there's this continuation of practicing sin and being in rebellion to God. It amounts to rebellion to God, even if somebody isn't saying that they rebel against God. If they live that way, they are. That's what this is saying. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him... There is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So if it wasn't for him framing this up, this would be really sobering reality. It'd be scary. I sin. You sin. John says that everyone sins, and if we say that we don't sin, then we're lying, and the truth isn't in us. So, what we need to understand is the tense that he's using here. Commonly in 1 John, he uses a tense which doesn't translate perfectly into English, but it kind of has the idea of, if you continue to sin, if you keep on sinning, you go on sinning, you're not in Christ. So if that's the habit of your life, that should be sobering and should draw us not to fear, but to repentance. 
if we have a sustained sin, let's go to the Father. Let's go and and supplicate before our advocate and say, please help me to kill this sin and put it to death. I want to be free of it. That's what you paid for. That's what you want. That's what we should do with our sin. And figure out how you can do warfare on your own sin. I'm getting a little preachy and I'm taking way too long, so let's keep moving. Um, let's read verses 17, I think 17 through 20 we already read. No. 17 through 20 of chapter 3. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. It's really cool. One of the tests of a true believer is, do you love people? And John says, and if we love people, we have, we have confidence before God. But actually, God is the one who is more trustworthy than our hearts. So we can trust what he says. And he says, your fruit shows what's inside. So if you're loving other people, praise be to God. Even if you don't feel like you're a believer, trust that he knows what he's talking about. If you're loving other people. So yes, abide in him and be refreshed by the gospel, but also be encouraged. Be encouraged. If you don't even feel like you're saved, but you're loving other people, just be encouraged. Um, and then verse 20, we already read. I'm just going to go through the notes at this point. Um, in the beginning of... In the beginning of chapter 4, I believe. I think I put something out of, out of order in your notes, so it's kind of throwing me for a loop here, sorry. Yes, so chapter 4 is a wonderful wonderful chapter and I highly recommend it to you because it's also the clearest chapter in the book in my opinion we're not really going to go through much there so jumping to chapter 5 um, verse 2 by this we know that we love the children of, of God when we love God and observe his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome how in the world can we live in such a way that God's commandments aren't burdensome? Well, joyful obedience. But how do we get there? Uh, a Christian author that I was reading this week uh, said it this way. I'm using a little bit different terminology, but he said the Christian life is composed not just of knowledge of God, but also intimacy with God. And if we lack either one of those, it will stifle the Christian life. So if we just have intimacy, then we're going to go off the rails and we're going to just be living something that isn't actually Christianity because it's not based on who God really is. But if we just focus on knowledge of God, 
then we're going to become dry and it's going to put our fire out, so to speak. So we need the knowledge of God as fuel for the fire, which only is fuel when it's coupled with intimacy with God. So how is your prayer life? Are you talking with God? Are you bringing things before him as you face them day to day, moment to moment? Are you, when you recognize a challenge or a struggle, are you saying, God, I need you? When you have a moment to rejoice in something that you're happy about, are you singing songs of praise like James 5 says? Are you walking with God or just learning things about God? We need both. And without both, it's going to be impossible for us to joyfully obey him. But with both, it's more than possible. It's how the Christian life works. In verse 6 of chapter 5, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So what is the water? It's Christ's baptism where God literally testified, this is my beloved son. And the spirit testifies, this is Christ. He testifies to Christ even now in our hearts. And the blood obviously also testifies of Christ as the saving sacrifice the promised suffering servant and God himself. <clears throat> Clock is my enemy, I'm sorry. Verse 13 of chapter 5. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to these churches to say, look, in the face of these false teachers who are trying to tell you, you need this higher truth, don't listen to them. Don't worry about what they say. You? I want you to have confidence before him. I want you to know, to believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's where our confidence lies. In the Son of God. I'm going to jump over the rest of that to the last verse, the last two verses. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Does this not seem like the most abrupt ending ever? <laughs> and yet it's not. It's actually set up in a perfect flow. And it's, it's really cool. And I don't think I can say it better than I wrote it, so I'm going to read my notes. It's as if, in a sense, John is saying, in Christ we have protection from Satan, understanding, knowledge of Christ, eternal life, God himself. Don't settle for anything less. 
little jar. Children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a perfect flow. He's contrasting Christ, the true God, with other vain pursuits. So, the book of 1 John. Whole picture is, he's saying, this is the truth. They say that they have a higher truth. Don't worry about it. You're walking in the truth. Keep walking in the truth. Walk in love and in the truth. That's the same thing. And have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. He's encouraging the church with all these truths that they need to hear to combat these false teachers. Do you guys have any questions on First John? Yes, in First uh, John uh, verse two. Um, we'll just get back there. Which uh, chapter? First uh, John, uh, verse two. Um, It's it. Uh, it talks about uh, we know that we have come to know this and keep his commandments and you know but he gives the commandment of uh, you know love your neighbor as yourself um, is he talking about getting rid of the ten commandments the moral law uh, can you tell me which chapter it is sorry it's Chapter 2, verses um, 3 um, through 7. Okay. Uh, by this we know that we have come to know his him if we keep his commandments. The only one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whosoever follows his word... In him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are that one who says that he remains in his him ought to um, him just as he has walked. And he goes on to um, talk about um, you know love your neighbor as yourself. Um, to walk in love, yeah. Yeah, to walk in love, thank you. Uh, so is he talking about like not following those commandments and just follow this one to get into the kingdom of God? Um, I'm a little confused. Sure. Um, he's not. He's not addressing the believer's relationship with the Old Testament here. He's. That would be a question for another book. But the context here is more focused on. Um, like in verse 2, he points to Christ as the propitiation for our sins. So the one who paid for our sins. Right. Um, and he's talking about having confidence. How do we know that we are of God is when we keep his commandments. Right. So it's not the means. Keeping God's commandments is never the means to salvation. But it's how we have confidence after the fact. So... Faith without deeds is dead. Faith is what saves. Faith alone. God alone saves. We trust him to save us. And once we have faith, and once he saves us, then we live out the reality. 
and he saved us too. Does that make sense? Yes. And then we have confidence because we see, oh, we're living according to the truth. That gives us confidence that we are indeed in Christ. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? I think this is going to be a first John class. <laughs> You know, mentioned there was that tense in Greek that means about continual sin. Do you know what the name of that tense is called? Uh, it would either be the imperfective or it would be the present continuous. I'm not sure which one. Sorry. <laughs> I saw a nod. Todd, do you know which one it is? What was the question? Which tense is it that John uses in when he talks about when you go on sinning? but it's the, the continual hardship that we have with understanding, wait, we all sin, why does he say we shouldn't sin anymore when we're saved? Yeah, I'd have to look at it, but I would think it'd be present tense, meaning if this is an ongoing pattern of their life. So the person who is an ongoing, has an ongoing pattern of sin, unrepentant, it characterizes them, that person is not, not saved. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Uh, excellent job, by the way, but I'm just uh, thinking about uh, chapter 5, verse 12. So he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son, God does not have the life. And, and this is a witness God, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. I think in the Gospel of John somewhere, I memorized years ago, it says, and this is eternal life, to know him, Jesus. Uh, and it says the, uh, the Son of God... I can't remember the whole verse, but this is eternal life to know, not know about, to know. And it's like, well, I know somebody, but I don't spend time with them. I really don't know. I know about them. So that hit me years ago, and it kind of woke me up. It's not just knowing about and praising the Lord. It's just knowing Him intimately. Thanks for that comment. Through prayer and study. That's good. I have one more question. You said... Um, it says in one of the versions of the chapters, um, you know, give up all your belongings and don't worship false idols. Um, and then you, uh, and we talked a little bit about that in the service, but then right after that said, it's okay to hold on to some things. <laughs> um, so that like, kind of threw me for a loop. So I was trying to provide a caveat because sometimes we can look at something that's good that's in our lives. Um, I'll give you a personal example. I'm engaged. I could very easily make my fiance an idol and make all of life about her. But that doesn't, if, if I do that, then I should not just react and go, all right, I need to do away with that idol. We're not engaged anymore. I should instead correct the problem in my heart because that's where the real problem is. So I was just trying to say, if the problem is in your heart, then address the heart problem. If the problem is this is actually sin that you're idolizing, yeah, get rid of that thing. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And thank you for John's witness that helped the early church so much and encouraged them so much. 
against the false teachers who were trying to rattle their cages and tell them that they needed to follow a different way. We thank you that your way is truth. We thank you that you testify through your spirit to us. And we thank you that your word is consistent. Help us to walk in truth, God. Help us to submit to you and have you first in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.